Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States, currently in old London, not in new London. (laughs) (laughs) And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm about 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and actually today I'm in Sydney, Australia, not too far away. Uh, I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014, and when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. That's right, and reversing diabetes. Yeah, and hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. We're not doctors. We don't want to give any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? No way. Well, he isn't afraid of it. (laughs) We have done some (laughs) research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we found in the show notes. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Mm -hmm. We love to cook and we love to eat. Yep. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Mm -hmm. Except for today, because I don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) More on that later. So, So let's start podcast number 142, Professor Jake Kushner, pediatric endocrinologist. Could you save your do for a little... So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Let's see. Last week was 141, the grandfather of ketogenic diets, Professor Stephen Finney. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't dare say that he got anything wrong. (laughs) However, (laughs) I had one person who we'll hear from in the mail ask, who is right, Professor Finney or Dr. Fung? Professor Finney is thoroughly researched and well-referenced, and I can't fault any of his arguments, but... I suspect both may be right in context, and there's more of that later on in the mail. Yeah, and and the context is, uh, just for people who don't know what that refers to, their their thoughts about fasting and muscle mass loss, but we'll talk about that. Only fasting. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you into a state of ketosis where you're burning fat for energy rather than glucose. Mm Mm-hmm. And a surefire way to do that is limit your carbohydrates daily to 20 grams or less. Yeah, that's not a lot. And get those carbs from leafy vegetables and above ground vegetables, mm-hmm. green leafy vegetables. And uh, protein you want to keep moderate. And we used a one to one and a half grams of protein every day for every kilogram of lean body mass that you have. Yeah. And then you're going to eat fat to satiety. Oh, mm-hmm. excuse me. You're going to eat fat, fat. <laughs> to satiety. <laughs> and if you're just starting, uh, listen to our Starting Keto show at start.tokido.com. Right. Well, Richard, how was your week, man? It was uh, pretty stressful because I'm studying inorganic chemistry, which is a subject that I expect to not need after my exam on Monday. In fact, the exam should be tomorrow, which is uh, Saturday. Uh, but I had to get a special exemption because on Saturday I'm emceeing the low-carb uh, Sydney event. So uh, I, I obviously can't do that and do a chemistry final at the same time. So anyway, I got the exam changed. Uh, so I'm I'm stressing because uh, mm. it's I'm stuff that I'm interested in. 
I have no trouble studying. Stuff that I'm not interested in, I have a real trouble getting information in. It just doesn't mm. seem to stick. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit stressful for me. How was your week, Carl? Pretty good. I've been working on my film and um, talking to my clients and uh, doctors and trying to uh, strategize about the a way that this can have the most impact. Nice. And uh, I'm in London right now uh, visiting a friend. Mm-hmm. Old London. I went from New London to Old London, from the Thames River to the Thames River. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm visiting a friend who is trying to help me with that process. Mm-hmm. So I'm here for the entire weekend, and I'm very, very excited. But it was a sort of a last-minute trip, and uh, as such, I wasn't able to prepare a recipe so I bad Carl, but bad I will Carl. find <laughs> one and I'll put it in the show notes for you when I get it done. So that's it. Well, let's give away some swag, buddy. Yeah. Every show we pick a lucky winner at random from the members of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. Right. And today we're giving away a treasure trove of stuff from vendors we like, all of which you can find at fanclub.2keto.com. We also need to mention a caveat. Most of our vendors can only ship inside the United States. That's right. However, if we happen to pick someone outside the U.S., we will find something to send, but it probably won't be the whole treasure trove. So who's our winner this week? Today's winner is John Lucas III. Congratulations, John. Let's tell everyone what John has won. Yeah. All right. Well, the first thing John has won is a two Keto Dudes coffee mug with our mugs on it that says, Keep Calm and Keto On. More sage advice was never given on this show. And a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry online at lies.2keto.com. And a bottle of Stevia Sweet Barbecue Sauce, developed by a barbecue restaurant owner who plans to change the restaurant industry forever. Only two carbs per serving, online at steviasweetbbq.com. We also have a cheese-making kit from Wine & Way. Pam Zorn gave everyone at Keto Fest a kit so they can make their own fresh mozzarella. Uh, it's available online at wineandway.com. That's W-I-N-E-A-N-D-W-H-E-Y.com. And a six-ounce cup of beef bone broth concentrate from Birthright Nutrition. Just add water, heat, stir, sip, and enjoy. Jam-packed with good stuff. More at birthrightnutrition.com. We're also giving away a bottle of Remag Magnesium Solution developed by Dr. Carolyn Dean, along with a copy of her protocol and the Keto and Magnesium Manifesto online at magmiracle.com. We're also giving away a big bottle of Fasting Drops from Keto Chow. It's a well-formulated blend of electrolytes. Just drop a little in your water and fasting will be a breeze. Online at fastingdrops.2keto.com. And two bottles of Sated, one chocolate, one vanilla, online at sated.2keto.com. And from Keto & Co., a sampler six-pack. A bag of brownies, four bags of different flavored cauliflower rices, and a bag of flatbread. Online at ketoand.co. And finally, a bag of everything bagels from Fox Hill Kitchens, made with yeast, but no wheat or gluten. Online at bread.2keto.com. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can buy all sorts of it online at gear.2keto.com. And now, it's time to read the... Yeah, okay there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, he's getting weaker every week. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. Mm. What you got, Carl? <laughs> All right, well, this one comes from the great big public keto before and after thread on our forum, which now has 
507 posts in it. Wow. And you can get there at success.2keto.com if you want to see some success stories and hear about people's uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. So, this one is from Jenny. And she says, I want to play too. In other words, I'm throwing in my success story. Only the most recent 28 pounds has come off because I'm doing lazy keto, but I'd stalled for about a year in weight loss efforts and suddenly was gaining back again. Taking all sugar out and limiting fruit essentially put me into a keto diet. I had removed grain years ago and upped my healthy fats about two and a half years ago. 94 pounds down, 17 nice. to go. Mm -hmm. Well done, Jenny. And her yeah. picture is just amazing. Yeah, well done. You know, it's just amazing. Keep calm and keto on. As I said, sager advice was never given mm -hmm. on our show. That seems to be just the secret sauce to just letting keto happen, letting yep. your healing happen. Just just let it work. Mm -hmm. So that's my mail, Richard. What do you got? Yeah, I've got one from Facebook. I called out in the errata for the last week's show. This was actually a response to the post that we put with Professor Finney and myself talking about the ketogenic diet. Right. And uh, this was from Rosemary, and she says, I love listening to Professor Finney talk about keto, but I'm confused. I think I've heard him say that he doesn't agree with fasting and his reasoning contradicts with what Dr. Fung mm. promotes. What do we believe about fasting? And I've got to say that mm. um, uh, we can have different opinions in this community and we can still agree on the fundamentals. We, we, we shouldn't really have... In an ideal world, we wouldn't believe anything. We'd know it because we'd have confirmational evidence that is incontrovertible and everyone agrees with. But in fact, some of the evidence is interpreted and um, and everyone will interpret the evidence in a different way. Um, I, I would say both gentlemen agree on a lot of things. They both agree on low-carb, high-fat diets. Um, they do have a differing opinion on the mm. interpretation of the evidence with respect to adequate protein and meal timing. Specifically fasting. And you, you'll have heard Professor Finney say that he has no problem with intermittent fasting, you know, yeah. as, uh, 18, 6, uh, you know, even, you know, 23, 1, if you, if you really want. Um, but he, he doesn't mm -hmm. believe in fasts that uh, go over two days. And he has good science to back that up. And you'll see this in his uh, presentations. And two of the things that he really talks about, he talks about extreme protein loss after two or three days of fasting. Once you once you get over two days yeah. of fasting, he says that protein loss gets quite extreme. And so as a doctor, you're trying to keep lean tissue on people. You're not you don't want people um, suffering from sarcopenia. And he also says that uh, people's metabolic rates drop precipitously after the second day and they it takes a long time to, to you know they after refeeding before they recover and dr fung says quite the opposite he says in his clinical experience he's fasted over a thousand people and he says the metabolic rates don't drop right. and they don't have a, a loss of lean tissue in fact they have um, preservation of lean tissue so um, i think both gentlemen are correct because they both have different contexts now Dr. Finney referred to a number of studies, and there's not a lot of studies uh, into fasting. Um, there's ethical considerations about starving subjects is the first thing. Yeah. There was a time when we used to be able to do uh, experiments that we probably can't uh, ethically do now. And some of uh, George Carhill's uh, starvation in man experiments, which are really that this is the, the gold standard for what we know about human starvation, mm. um, a lot of these we like, for example, the one where um, he, he dropped somebody's um, 
somebody who was starving dropped their glucose so so low uh, by giving them insulin that uh, they should have been in a coma and they were quite uh, quite happily chucking along. We wouldn't be able to do that experiment now. It'd be unethical to do. Um, right. So his um, George Cahill's starvation in man experiments, mm-hmm. it's one of the experiments that's referred to by Professor Finney to describe the loss of lean tissue that occurs during fasting. We don't know a lot about the actual subjects that Dr. Cahill looked at, other than the primary subject was a middle-aged man. But we do know uh, that he was able to draw down roughly 160 grams of body fat. So um, I'm, I can infer using the Alpert right. data um, that he was able to, well, firstly, he was able to deliver roughly 1440 kilocalories a day and he had roughly 20 kilograms of body fat and he was probably around 70 to 80 kilograms in weight. That subject is going to be different from the the subjects, obviously, that that Jason Fung looks at. They're obese, they're diabetic, and they're um, you know they have a hundred kilograms of body fat. Right now, George Cahill's subject was able to make fourteen hundred and forty kilocalories per day of energy from fat. So now most humans need roughly twenty eight hundred. So he's only able to make half the energy that he needs. And so he would have had to have reduced his metabolic rate, you know, uh, and he would also have had to find other sources of energy. He would have had to have have cannibalized lean tissue to be able to supplement that, the arrears, you know. So a person with, um, say, so that was a person with 20 kilograms of fat. They can produce 1,400 uh, calories and they need uh, 2,800 a day. So they're going to be burning quite a, a lot of lean tissue to be able to support that and the metabolic rate will drop a person with however yeah. 40 kilograms of body fat can generate 2772 kilocalories a day and that's almost enough to run a human being on a day without having to reduce their energy use or to burn lean tissue for energy and this kind of explains why dr finney says that the evidence has never been challenged that a fasting man reduces his metabolic rate and burns a significant amount of lean tissue dr finney in that context is correct that evidence has not been challenged and it probably won't be but it also explains how dr fun can say of his thousands of of patients who come to his clinic who are obese and needing to reverse type 2 diabetes fast that he has never observed significant metabolic slowdown or significant loss of lean tissue. So Dr. Fung can also be correct in that context. I'm going to put a link into the show notes to some of the math that I did on the subject of, um, and I put it on the ketogenic forum and it was a post I did quite some time ago. Right. But I want to call out something that uh, Professor Finney did mention. He mentioned a a very real risk that it is possible that people could kill themselves by fasting. This is one of the reasons why the Guinness Book of Records no longer has uh, a, a longest fast category because the the guy who fasted the longest was 382 days, a Scotsman by the name of Angus, Angus Barbieri. Barbieri. Yeah, and, and yeah. A, a number of people have tried for that record and killed themselves, and so they, they removed that category. Mm. Uh, so Professor Finney's quite correct that people who are wow. doing extreme unsupervised fasting um, could be doing permanent damage if, in fact, could could kill themselves and they could permanently damage the reputation of ketogenic diets Mm. this has already happened in the 70s with a liquid protein diet and it could happen again right so um you know it's worth it's worth paying attention to that there are some cowboys on youtube who uh, profess to be ketogenic coaches but um you know they're doing it without a strong understanding of the science and there's one coach in particular who yells at fat people all the time um on youtube advocating dry fasting where he he drinks his own urine 
That's crazy. I think it's important to call out this kind of thing as the silly and dangerous fringe that it is and to differentiate that from serious weight loss clinics who use supervised meal timing to help type 2 diabetics to reverse their disease. So that's just my, (laughs) that's me on my soapbox. Yeah. Well, Richard, I'm I'm so glad that you you put all this stuff into perspective because there are nuances to this story and people are always looking for always do this, never do that. And uh, it's just not that easy to do. You just can't think like that. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you sort of unpacked it for us. Yeah, I would say my general advice is I don't myself fast over three days. I have fasted for 10 days and I started to feel a bit weird. Yeah. And so I, I pulled the pin. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I don't fast over three days because the evidence uh, hasn't shown any benefit after three days. Um, really, you hit maximum uh, autophagy, right. ma- maximum cleaning up of uh, of unnecessary proteins structures after three days. And, you know, Megan says the same thing. Yeah. She recommends that her patients only do a three-day fast. Yeah. Well, the, Megan Ramos yeah. from the IDM. So, this is, you know, this is exactly the, the case. I think one of the things that happened was um, right. Dr. Fun was involved in writing a book um, on fasting. And one of his co-authors w- um, spoke a lot about, you know, long, you know, 20 day fasts and, and what have you. And I think, I think, I think part of his message was conflated there. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, a, a, a 20 day fast super, supervised yeah. by a medical, you know, physician is, is that that could be entirely uh, appropriate. But, you know, mm. and we also know of people on the forum who um, fasted for what, 40 some odd days? Remember the guy that we did a show yeah. uh, with him? He fasted for 40 some odd days. Yeah, there are some religious undertones then. I think he was doing it for Lent and he was you know, following some stories in the Bible. Mm. It's worth highlighting that this is quite risky behavior. It's like running a, marath- a marathon every day for a month. Right. You could do it. Eddie Izzard, the English comedian and aspiring mayor of London, who has a similar face to me when we're both fat. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. He uh, he was doing he was doing this marathon a day for yeah. for like forty days, and uh, on like the the twenty eighth day or something like that, mm. he he came down with rhabdomyolysis, which is where you urinate out your muscles, <laughs> which is a, a scary disease to get. Anyway, yeah, but ketogenic diets as practiced by Dr. Finney and uh, you know, intermittent fasting is practiced by the IDM clinic are both well-known techniques for reversing diabetes. Both reverse diabetes and there is clinical evidence in the literature to show that. Great. Thanks again, Richard. That's that's awesome. Awesome insights there. Um, that brings us squarely to our interview today that uh, you did with Professor Jake Kushner. You want to introduce this for us? Yeah, he's a great guy. So, I met him at Low Carb Gold Coast. Uh, in fact, I, I had met him briefly in Breckenridge last year, but he was uh, he was at Gold Coast this year, and he was one of the three guests, Dave Feldman, Stephen Finney, and Jake Kushner, who um, the three American guests, and there, there, of course, obviously were a lot of Australian yeah. presenters at this event. And uh, we spoke um, at, at length about a wide-ranging uh, subject, but essentially we were talking about ketogenic diets and type two diabetes, and then we spoke about um, <laughs> about my science career. At one point, I'm not sure we recorded all of that, and and we and he gave gave me a lot of really good advice over dinner about uh, how to uh, drive my my science career. But anyway, I, this is the interview that we had at the Gold Coast uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Great, let's roll it. Mm-hmm. 
I'm here at Lake Harb down under Gold Coast with Dr. Jake Kushner, yes. Professor Jake Kushner. Yes, Associate Professor Jake Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he gave a wonderful presentation on his work with type 1 diabetics at Lake Harb down under. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. It was really my pleasure to be able to do this and to be able to meet all these incredible people at this event and really to sort of you know, be able to talk about my passion, uh, which, as you can tell, has been type 1 diabetes for essentially my entire professional career. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. How did you get to a low-carb conference professionally? What triggered you to look into low-carb treatments as a possibility for diabetics? So, I, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and I was very interested in and trying to find some esoteric and interesting metabolic condition that I could in some way contribute to understanding and learning. And I thought I was going to be a basic scientist and find something rare and unusual. And I eventually discovered that pediatric diabetes was mm -hmm. really very important to me. And I became a basic scientist mm -hmm. and also have an active practice caring for children and young adults right. uh, with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And I, I began to get worried about basic science, wondering if I was ever going to see translation from my basic science career to help humanity, mm. uh, at least in my lifetime. And I started thinking about ways to try to be more creative about my clinical practice. Right. And I was feeling generally dissatisfied about how uh, people live with type 1 diabetes, the sort of standard practices that are offered to them, mm. and made the interesting observation that many people with type 1 diabetes had really gone off the rails yeah. in terms of the nutrition practice. Mm. One sort of pivotal event for me was back when I was um, – a young doctor in mm -hmm. Boston yeah. um, at Harvard Medical School, and I was with my friend, Dr. Marianne Quinn, mm -hmm. who lives with type 1 diabetes herself, right. is a pediatric endocrinologist, and we were at this restaurant. We were actually at a pizza place, Bertucci's, mm -hmm. and I saw her eating a Caesar salad and she was picking the croutons off her salad. Oh. And I said to Marianne... I can recognize that. What are you doing? <laughs> and she said... You know, Jake, uh, I just can't eat this stuff. I said, mm. why? I yeah. said, can't you take insulin for it? She goes, Jake, it doesn't work like that. She goes, the more carbs I eat, the stranger my blood sugars are. And I've just found that it's easier to stay away from carbs and my blood sugars get closer and closer to normal. Right. So, that was 20 years ago. Mm. And around this time, I met Dr. David Ludwig. Okay. Uh, yes. And he was very interested at the time in low carb and mm -hmm. the zone. And we would go to his obesity service mm -hmm. and work as young doctors. And I remember saying to him, you know, David, the greatest potential impact for low carb could be type 1 diabetes. Right. And he, he gave me this pain look. He mm -hmm. said, Jake, that's not a nearly as big a problem as obesity. Right. Uh, but um, again, my focus has been type 1 diabetes. And so, I wondered whether low carb could be uniquely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, even 20 years ago. Fast forward 20 years, and what's happened to me is I've moved from institution to institution. I was uh, an instructor uh, at Harvard Medical School, and then I was an assistant professor at mm -hmm. UPenn in Philadelphia, and now more recently at the Baylor College of Medicine. And along the way, I've had many close friends and colleagues who themselves have type 1 diabetes. And this is sort of a, sure. a peculiar aspect of the 
of the endocrinology world, but many people who are personally affected by type 1 diabetes decide to go into the field. So, it's yeah. really wonderful. It's the personal epiphany, isn't yeah, it? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. And so, Along the way, I've become very close with many of them and have discovered that they, too, are adopting low-carb approaches. And right. over time, we've been trying to sort of think about and refine this stuff. Mm. So, again, it really came from friendship mm. uh, and companionship with, with people who have type 1 themselves and looking and trying to understand how it works and, and uh, strategies. And so, through all this thought, I began to realize that low-carb was very powerful. Finally, uh, a friend of mine, Kelly Sarasolo, who's a nurse practitioner who mm -hmm. has type 1 diabetes, yeah. said, well, do you know about Dr. Bernstein's book? And I said, what? Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, this is seven years ago. Yeah. I got Bernstein's book and I was just blown away yeah. by it. And um, I started asking around, I'm like, do you know about this book? This is amazing. And people are like, oh, yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, oh, no. you know, it shows you the strange stigma that low carb has had in the type one or in the endocrinology world mm -hmm. that uh, many of my friends and colleagues simply thought that uh, it couldn't be done or it shouldn't be done. Mm. And it took me a while of reading and learning and thinking to overcome my anxiety. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, to me, the real epiphany was when I read Gary Taub's Good Calories, Bad Calories. Right. And uh, I read it over a period of six months, uh, mm. savoring every yeah. chapter. Yes. I would read a chapter, and then I would rush to my laptop and download a series of PDFs and read those articles. Right. And then when I felt like I'd understood it, I would go back and read some more. Yeah. A, a chapter from Taub's is like an entire education. Exactly. Right. Yes. right. So, I read Good Calories, Bad Calories. Mm -hmm. My wife and I read quite a few chapters together. She finally said, okay, like, we just need to do this. Personally. Personally, as a family, actually. Right. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, we had been eating low-ish carb for a while, but we still had pizza and pasta and other things. Sure. And one day, she literally eradicated enriched carbohydrates from her house. She cleaned them all up. That's actually the trick, is to go through your pantry and find all yep. the flour, all the sugar, all the honey, and just get rid of it, because you don't, you're not going to need it for the, at least the next six weeks, right. and hopefully the next, the rest of your life. <laughs> and so, we made the transition, mm. uh, and I can still remember uh, how challenging it was. So, for instance, there was one point where I just said, you know, I'm so hungry. And she mm. looked at me, she goes, go eat some nuts. I yeah. can't be around you. <laughs> and I went and ate about a, you know, a, a cup of almonds. Right. Yeah. So, I was simply starving. Yeah. And essentially, I made the transition to fat burning. Mm -hmm. I still had a few more carbs uh, in, in my diet um, than she did for a while. Mm. And then over the past year, we switched to nutritional ketosis. Yeah. And so, my ketones went from, my beta hydroxybutyrate went from routinely like 0.1 to 0.4 to yeah. now 0.5 to 1.5. Nice. And I've enjoyed it immensely. It's yeah. It's just been an amazing thing. Yeah. So, I got interested in low carb. I started thinking about low carb. I'm working with Gary Towns. I contacted Gary Towns because mm. I was just so amazed by his book. Yeah. He was very friendly. Mm -hmm. Through him, I met Peter Atia, mm -hmm. and then Gary started introducing me to various people. Right, and then he's a great connection. Oh, he's yeah. incredible. <laughs> yeah. And so then I found myself uh, talking to Rod Taylor and Jeff Gerber, Excellent. and they invited me to give a presentation at a low carb Breckenridge. And I, I heard about these low carb conferences, but I hadn't really presented in public on low carb except for one very small conference in San Antonio. Yeah. 
But Gary Tabbs knew of my very strong interest and suggested that I might be a good speaker for Low Carb Breckenridge in 2017. Yeah. And so I accepted an invitation and made plans to go. And then uh, I broke my leg in Japan mm. and had to cancel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember them telling that telling yeah, us that story. It was completely bonkers. I think I think I don't remember who re- who filled in for you, but uh, I recall they were quite good as well. So yeah. 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 But it was, I'm glad that you managed to make it to 2018. And yeah. again, by now I've gotten uh, my, really used to. Thinking about low carb, and have been had had been giving talks at least in my own institution, mm. trying to really re- refine my thoughts about it. Right. I gave that talk at Low Carb Breckenridge. It was an amazing experience for me, and I um, continue to collaborate with a bunch of people in the low carb community. We actually even wrote a grant together. So when I say we, I mean uh, myself and Gary Taubes mm-hmm. and Dr. Daniel DeSalvo of the Baylor yeah. College of Medicine mm-hmm. and a few other people to try to get money to do a randomized controlled clinical trial mm. for low-carb and type 1 diabetes. Right. It was a very expensive trial. We wrote to a private organization. Um, it wasn't funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, my hope is that the essence of that trial will ultimately play out over time and that there will be young people and funding agencies mm-hmm. that will realize the opportunity to transform clinical outcomes with type 1 yeah. through research. I think the Lenaire's paper, uh, the one that David Ludwig yes. was a senior researcher yes. for, I think that uh, that mandates a study like this because it, it basically puts forward uh, a, a series of, of well-documented anecdotes and are really a generation of hypothesis. That a low-carb diet enables type 1 diabetics to maintain incredible glucose control. Yeah, that paper is amazing, and it describes this community in, in Facebook called Type 1 Grit, mm. uh, which was created by R.D. Dykeman, and it's a group of 3,000 people, primarily uh, people who live with type 1 or loved ones of people who live with type 1, but also healthcare providers such as myself, yeah. I'm a member, right. um, who are interested in uh, low-carb and specifically the, the approach advocated by Dr. Richard Bernstein. Mm. And so, it's a wonderful community. And in this closed Facebook group, you see... Um, narratives from people. So you might see a, uh, a picture of food, a picture of a happy kid eating food. You might see continuous glucose, glucose monitor trace. tracings. Yeah. You might see somebody holding up a hemoglobin A1C testing device showing that their hemoglobin A1C was only, was 5.3% right. and they have a yeah. big ha- smiling face. <laughs> and you'll also hear, um, Amazing narratives about how people feel like their lives have been changed by using low-carb approaches. Mm. And again, it's worth pointing out that type 1 diabetes is a very complex condition. So, in type 1 diabetes, people have a complete inability to make insulin and... Um, they have to replace that insulin with injections and it just doesn't work well. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult to effectively replace the long acting insulin is a little bit challenging because, mm-hmm. um, we have a, normally our pancreas has a lot of dynamic capacity to make more or less insulin. Yeah. And if you inject insulin or use an insulin pump, you're just sort of d- dumping in a predictable amount or a semi predictable yeah. amount. Uh, with no ability to dynamically respond to blood glucose. Yeah. And then also there's there's a requirement for short-acting insulin response mm-hmm. to meals or some sort of other acute stressors. Yeah. And that's very difficult to effectively replace. And I think even for non-diabetic humans, this high-carb lifestyle that we're living in can make people sick. But yeah. for people who can't make insulin, it's especially problematic because it's really challenging to replace 
the lost insulin from your pancreas with a giant whomping yeah. shot of insulin. Yeah. It's I mean how do you how do you replicate the concentration gradient between the pancreas and the periphery? Right. Is it possible? Yeah, Would, and yeah. even stranger, we inject insulin in the periphery, mm. but normally the pancreas produces insulin in response to glucose that comes through the portal vein, and right. it acts directly upon the liver. Right. So, there's a whole yeah. pharmacokinetics that's that's broken. There's also um, the incretin system. So, by the time we think about food, mm. smell food, realize we're hungry, put ourselves in a position to eat, the whole insulin secretion system has been primed by the incretin pathway that secretes GLP-1 and GIP-1. Yeah. And these hormones activate your insulin secretion capacity even before the food hits the mouth. Yeah. And we can't replicate that by injecting a shot. Mm. And it's so, uh, you know, what we've traditionally said to people is, okay, so you have to predict the meal that you're going to eat and inject, and inject insulin 15 to 35 minutes before the meal right. in order to have blood sugars at the stable range after the meal. Yeah. It's ridiculously hard. It just doesn't mm. work. Yeah. It's very it's, difficult. So, mechanical pancreases, I know that this was something that people were saying this would be the solution would be to implant a, right. a pancreas. They really run on glucose, don't they? There's a glucose That's right. calibration for an insulin dose. Uh, um, so, it's going to miss that incretin. Yeah, and there's a whole time delay as well. And mm. the problem is when you inject insulin, you're injecting a hormone that lasts for several hours, but the insulin that is contained within our blood has a half-life of five to seven minutes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so our pancreas mm. secretes insulin directly into the blood and has this massive dynamic capacity. Yeah. But when you inject insulin, you're just sort of committing yourself to several hours of insulin action. There's, there's different kinds of insulin. Yeah. They, the shortest ones last for maybe three hours, and mm. the longest ones last for several days. Right. But what we don't have is an insulin that only lasts for minutes or seconds mm. that could then be controlled by a pump. Yeah. And so, the problem is, by the time the automated insulin delivery system senses that your blood glucose is high and yeah. it decides to give you more insulin, yeah. it's going to take 30 to 60 minutes to act. Right. And so, uh, imagine, if you will, driving down the road mm. and you have a funny sort of steering wheel right. that only responds 30 minutes after <laughs> you make a change. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, obviously, what's going to happen is if you if you drove in a city, you'd just mm. run off the road. You'd crash. Yeah. yeah. But if you drove out in the you know, in the Bonneville Salt Flats in, yes. in, in Utah. Long straight roads. Long, yeah. yeah. Or, or no road at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would drive. But, of course, what you'd see if you went from a helicopter up above <laughs> is you'd see a sine wave. You'd see yeah. an S-curve. Yes. And the reason is you'd be adjusting back and forth. Yeah. And actually, um, this happened to me once when I was sailing. For the okay. first time, <laughs> I, um, I held the tiller. I, I had friends and we went sailing on a, on a J-boat and san francisco bay Lovely. and they had me holding the tiller and we're going from uh, from berkeley out into angels island mm. and my friend mike looked at me he goes jake look back and we look back and there was a sine wave yeah, in the water in the because <laughs> i had been turning back and forth and right. back and forth yeah. and what he said is you can't respond because the problem is the boat takes too long to respond to the tiller just yeah. pick a point and, and stick with it yeah. and then change that 
essentially is the essence of low carb. That's a great analogy, yeah. That describes the, the flattening of the trace. You don't have all of these big peaks. You're not right. on the roller coaster. Right. And uh, and so because there are smaller peaks, right. you, it's a law of small numbers, isn't it? Yeah, it's a law of smaller numbers, and it also suggests that you probably want to reduce the number of times that you intervene. Yeah. And I do believe... Just as an aside, somewhat non-scientific, I think this snacking culture that we live in is mm. utterly toxic. I am yeah, not I at all convinced that people need to eat five meals a day. No. They probably need to eat five meals if they're mostly sugar burning right. and they're hungry. And, they're, and they have a, a, a pancreas that can still produce the right amount of insulin. But to go back to that sailing analogy, the idea is you're holding the tiller, you're looking at a point far mm. away, mm. and you're trying to line up some point on the sailboat with mm. a point that's far away and you're going to try to stick with it and then make few adjustments. Right. That's the equivalent of having only a couple of meals a day. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm a type 2 diabetic and, and our problem is slightly different, but there is some similarity in that uh, we don't make the right amount of insulin. Right. And and so, it, for, for us, if we, uh, if we don't eat a lot of glucose, we make just our livers basically take over the, the homeostasis. Yeah. But no longer is our pancreas being the homeostatic organ that's controlling glucose. Our liver becomes a ho- – it makes glucose on demand. Right. And then, then the amount and of And it makes glucose when it's not on demand. It takes way too much. In my case, it does. It definitely does. So, uh, But, uh, you know, that, that I have to take metformin for that. But yeah. it replaces the homeostatic regulation. So, um, and I, you know, this is the same kind of thing that's happening for type 1 diabetics. A type 1 diabetic – uh, takes their, their long-acting insulin. And because they're not eating a lot of glucose through the day and they're not eating a high-protein diet, if they're a, a, right. on a ketogenic diet, then uh, then the amount of insulin that they need is pretty much stable most of the day. Yeah. And it, then they make the glucose on demand. And amazingly, uh, so with type 1 diabetes, what you get is tremendous insight into human physiology. Because, so for instance, people who are on a high-carb diet and have type 1 diabetes... Well, they require enormous amounts of short-acting insulin. So if they are, uh, you know, I've seen these kids who are consuming gobs and gobs of carbohydrates, Mm. huge amounts of insulin, they end up gaining weight, and then their long-acting requirements go up as well. Um, On the other hand, if you're able to reduce carbohydrates Mm. to very small amounts, again, this is the Bernstein rule of small numbers, Small amounts of carbohydrate or small amounts of insulin-requiring meals mean very small doses of insulin and less opportunity to get off track, to have blood sugars that are high or low. Mm, Yeah. You can hear a helicopter going by. We're actually sitting on the beach, believe it or not, and so that's that's (laughs) a rescue helicopter going by. You probably hear the sounds of uh, the ocean in the background. It's a wonderful view that (laughs) Dr. Kushner has from his place. So what are the barriers and challenges for for a type 1 diabetic in taking up a a ketogenic diet? Because it's going to be different for them than somebody like me who can make insulin. Well, the, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of interesting uh, and, and unique components to this question. One is, where do you learn? Um, mm. And there is this wonderful book from Dr. Bernstein, uh, which is the, which has sort of been the Bible of the low-carb community for, for type 1. There's also a terrific book by Adam Brown 
So Adam Brown has written a wonderful book called Bright Spots and Landmines, mm. which is essentially a like an owner's manual for someone who lives with with diabetes, but it's especially focused on type 1. Mm. And it has a lot of great tips on nutrition and low carb, but also just wonderful all-around tips mm. on living with diabetes and stigma and lifestyle okay. and exercise and I need wellness. This <laughs> I need to oh, read no, it. you yeah. need to meet yeah. him. Yeah. He's I, a really I, incredible, yeah. amazing guy. He works for Close Concerns. Okay. Kelly Close runs mm-hmm. a consulting business that provides a sort of a assessment around diabetes-related uh, industries. Okay. And so he has type 1, and he's very thoughtful about the way he approaches living with type 1. And unfortunately, these two books, Dr. Richard Bernstein's uh, Diabetes Solution mm. and Adam Brown's uh, Bright Spots and Landmines, are about the only books that I know of that really approach low-carb nutrition. Um, and many people who live with uh, diabetes type 1 or type 2 have few other solutions other than the internet and yeah. and what I would call secular uh, i.e. non-classical medical solutions. And, yeah. and, the, and the issue is there's just been tremendous cultural barriers for uh, endocrinologists and diabetologists and diabetes centers and classical nutritionists mm. to think about and get engaged and participate. Right. And I, I'm utterly perplexed by this because mm. a, as a physician, mm. I want to do everything I can to support the people who, who who come to me seeking care. Right. And I can't imagine not trying to look for innovative new solutions. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's abhorrent to yeah. me. Uh, but there are these huge barriers, and people in the classical endocrine field have made up a bunch of very strange excuses as to why low-carb couldn't or shouldn't work for a particular patient population. Right. Yeah. So one of my uh, real passions is to try to bridge the gap yeah. in between the people who live with, with type 1 or type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes and classical endocrine, academic mm-hmm. endocrine, diabetes centers, etc. And I feel like if we talk about in objective terms mm. what's happening to people who live with uh, diabetes who use low carb approaches and and the and this Facebook group type 1 grit is a wonderful example of that yeah we should be provoking some insightful questioning within the traditional academic endocrine fields yeah. and my hope would be that over time there would be uh requests for applications, particular mm-hmm. pots of money that are that are doled out that allow good hypothesis-driven, pre-specified, rigorous clinical research. Indeed, yeah. And, and I think it's only a matter of time. It was very easy for people to uh, poo-poo this and to say, oh, it, it couldn't be done or it shouldn't be done mm-hmm. or it could yeah. make people sick. But it's very hard to ignore a population of people who have type 1 diabetes, who have hemoglobin A1Cs that are, on average, 5.67% right. with a standard deviation of 0.6. Yeah. And that's what the yeah. w- what Dr. Ludwig's paper shows. Yeah. And if you're thinking at all about type 1 diabetes, you should be asking yourself, how did they do that? Yeah. And so, if you're a cynic, you might say, oh, well, they did it because they're special and they were highly motivated and low-carb itself doesn't confer any advantage mm-hmm. for type 1. 
But if you were an optimist, I think yeah. you would look at this. You say, yeah. "Hmm, maybe they figured something out." Yeah. One of your calls during your presentation was to uh, adults with type one diabetes who've managed to successfully do this to engage with clinics. Yes. Is that part of the conversation you, you're hoping to drive? Yeah. So we had volunteers um, at the uh, in the hospital when I served as the chief of of the diabetes clinic, mm. and um, I think it's a really powerful influence because the more uh, people who live with the condition, who are thinking about the condition, yeah. are around the healthcare providers, the more opportunity is to ensure that the care is faithful to their needs. Right. And we started off with a, a dear friend of mine, uh, David Boyles, who mm. who is close to 70, who's mm. had type 1 diabetes for many, many, many years. And... Um, and he, on his own, spontaneously decided he wanted to volunteer in a diabetes clinic. Wow. And yeah. he's a guy who wears cowboy boots, and mm -hmm. he's a hunter. He's hunted <laughs> on multiple continents. Yep. And he <laughs> is just a, he's an awesome, amazing, larger-than-life character. Mm -hmm. And he would volunteer in our clinic and walk in and meet families. And people would, you know, mothers would see his pump on the mm -hmm. on his belt. And they would just break down crying. Yeah. And because they had essentially thought that their children would never live long enough to be as old as this yeah. dude. And this guy's a robust yeah, human exactly. being on top of the, on top of everything. And, and they were worried their children would be brittle diabetics all their lives. At the time I met him, he was riding these unusual motorcycles that can go on and off road. And, <laughs> okay. and he would go yeah. on these yeah. extended touring trips yeah. and he had yeah. ridden all around the world. And so he's a very thoughtful guy. We spent a lot of time talking. He became a close friend. When he comes to Houston, sometimes he even stays with me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've learned an immense amount from from him and from other people who live with type 1. Mm. And so his presence really changed uh, the clinical service that I oversaw. And what I what I observed was that people were less likely to blame those who live with uh, diabetes for their struggles. Right. And more insightful and more open and more empathetic. And I think it's also possible that the people who were providing diabetes care but were a little bit resentful about it yeah. uh, just decided to get away from it. Mm. And the people who were really excited began to, to learn what he was saying. It's a natural filter. Yeah. yeah. And so, I sort of think of him as a real cultural pioneer for mm. pediatric diabetes, and I would love to have many other volunteers. Um, my friend Jamie Goldman was, was volunteering in our clinic as well. We never really got the volunteer program as busy and as robust as I would have liked, but um, I would encourage any listener who has diabetes who would like to share with others hmm. to march down to their local diabetes clinic or hospital and suggest that they'd like to volunteer. Yeah. And uh, I not suppose... Not that they have an agenda. Not, no. Not to say I, I'm a low-carb... Exactly. I'm just a diabetic who managed to... Right. And just offering cultural support, especially for newly diagnosed families, yeah. can be immensely helpful. Hmm. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful, of course, because, um, you know, the... The experience of somebody who has lived with type 1 diabetes uh, is immense, and those who are newly diagnosed, they're just on, on their journey. Yeah. But as long as you approach the experience with kid gloves and you're mm. sort of thinking about ways to be 
uh, open and authentic and respectful. Yeah. What happens in the clinical encounter is you realize that you have a lot to offer. Mm. Uh, and uh, again, I, I, I cannot tell you the number of times when we were able to make some real breakthroughs with families where they started thinking much more holistically about their uh, children's diabetes mm. after having conversations with adults who had diabetes. Yeah, I have a barrier myself to, to talking to type 1 diabetics because as a type 2 diabetic, I feel I'm not qualified to talk about the challenges that they're going to, they're going to face because for me, they're all theoretical. Yeah, I don't know about that because um, I would argue that uh, in a fair and just world, um, you know, someone in your town would think, oh, there's that Richard Morris guy. He's a mm. pretty smart dude, and he could teach me, you know, how to eat food that wouldn't drive my blood sugars up. Right. And there is a lot of cross-pollination in between the type 2 and the type 1 world around yeah. low-carb. And yeah. frankly, um, I would not be here uh, mm. at, at low-carb Gold Coast if it weren't for the obesity and, um, and crisis in type 2 diabetes. There is much more attention, and we're learning much more in the type 2 world than we are in the type 1 world right now. It's yeah. moving much faster. Yeah. But I still believe that you have a lot to offer. I send people uh, who have type 1 resources that are primarily directed towards the low-carb or obesity or type 2 community. Mm. Yeah. Uh, because I know that there's they're going to be generally applicable. There are some unique things around mm. type 1, like, you know, how much insulin do you take for protein? Yeah. Uh, where somebody who has type 1... Uh, probably can confer some some unique advantage, yeah. but there's a lot of generalizable oh, solutions. Oh, I might, I might do that, actually. So so w I want to close out the, this interview with uh, an anecdote that David Lim told me last night, and he was uh, he's one of the low-carb doctors here. He's got a practice in Sydney, and he was at a restaurant uh, across, the, across the road um, the other day for lunch, and he noticed a young family... Uh, or a family with a young child who, and they were injecting the child with, uh, with insulin. And so yeah. he introduced himself and he said, I don't know if, you know, I, I don't want to intrude, but, you know, I'm a physician and I, I treat, uh, I, I see you, you're injecting insulin. Um, do you know who's across the road? He said. And he, and he went on to talk about <laughs> this conference that we were having and, uh, said, you know, this is a great opportunity. Professor Kushner is here and he's talking about type 1 diabetics. And so, uh, he invited them to the conference and uh, Rod Taylor uh, uh, was more than happy to, to let them sit in. And uh, and you went and had a chat to, to chat to them for almost an hour. Is, is that is that do I have that story right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, amazingly, the week prior, the family had contacted their local caring physician mm -hmm. um, about the possibility of exploring low carb. Really? Wow. And had been rebuffed. Oh, no. And so they had been thinking about low carb. Mm. Uh, and, um, and their rationale went as follows. We struggle with our child's weight, mm -hmm. um, who's had some uh, unfortunate weight gain. Mm -hmm. We'd really like to find a way to reduce the glucose swings in between very high and very low blood sugars. We know that there's a lot of interest in this whole low carb thing. And we'd like to know, could this apply uh, to our child. Those are the right questions to ask. And the answer was no. And the answer was, and the answer was absolutely not. It's all rubbish. You know, it could put, it could put you in harm's way. Mm. Um, and I, 
it's an interesting story. So I, I sat down with them and we, we talked and I tried to offer advice. Of course, um, they're going to need a local physician who is caring and yeah. thoughtful. So, so they, they needed a, a sympathetic physician. Yeah. They needed a sympathetic physician and it's clear that, that they weren't going to get it locally. And, mm. and I suggested that they might enjoy meeting Dr. Troy Stapleton. Right. And he's a, a person who lives with type 1 diabetes. He's a radiologist. Yeah. Um, a really dynamic person. He's and, been on our show. Yeah. So, so I actually dragged them over to meet him. Yeah. And, and they were thrilled. And the question they were asking was, where can we go for health care? And um, he had a few names, actually. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to find a, a, a GP or um, an endocrinologist who will support low carb. Mm. But they were able to, to do that. And hopefully that, that journey will continue. I also gave them a big, long list of resources. Mm. And, and I do have a list of resources I'm happy to share with your, with, yeah. with your listeners. Can we put that in the show notes? Yes, certainly. Yeah, right. But, you know, one interesting challenge is just finding um, health care in your local community that can truly be supportive. And uh, I, I think that there's lots of reasons why people with diabetes or people who are interested in low-carb can do things on their own and should be able to do things on their own independent of their healthcare team. Mm. But we depend upon healthcare for some unique things and we should demand that they support us. And we need to find people who are open to low carb and then we need to encourage them. Nourish them. Nourish, nourish them. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, ultimately send people uh, to those practices. And, and my hope would be over the, over the coming uh, decade that this uh, that that this network of low carb friendly or open mm-hmm. physicians mm. would grow and grow and grow, and that um, and and that it represented a unique growth opportunity in local communities, so that people would be free to make their own choices. Well, that's wonderful, Professor Kushner. It's been a wonderful chat, and thank you very much for schlepping all the way out here to Australia to speak to us yokels. <laughs> much you, appreciated. You know, Australia's an amazing place, and Low Carb Down Under, let me just say, is an incredible conference, yeah. and and um, the people who are running it, Rod Taylor and mm-hmm. others, are doing a spectacular job, and it's an incredible gift uh, mm. to the world, frankly. Yeah. What Rod, Rod and Jamie and also Jeff Gerber in, in yes. America do, yeah. they, these guys really f- basically they, they fund the thing themselves and yeah. um, and uh, it, they are the reason that the low-carb community is different this time around than it was in 2004 or that it was in the 80s. And so, yeah, they, they make a, a massive difference. But you shouldn't tell people how wonderful Australia is because <laughs> what we do is – what you have to do is you have to tell people about all of the poisonous animals that you saw <laughs> and the drop bears because otherwise there'll be an influx of people. So you have to make sure to get the story straight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's small. And it's hot. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, uh, don't come here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Could you save your due for a little? Great interview, Richard. Okay, so as I say, that was a that was a wide ranging uh, conversation. He's he's a wonderful man, and uh, he cares a lot about uh, type one diabetics. He spent almost an hour of his own time. Somebody. Um, was at uh, a, a at a at a cafe and saw a family who were uh, injecting their daughter with insulin, and introduced them to Jake Kushner, 
And this was this was people just in a cafe across the road from where this event was happening. And Jake came out of the conference and spent an hour with these people yeah. just talking to them about how to uh, deal with um, type 1 diabetes. And, you know, he's a world expert on the subject, so um, lovely guy. Yeah, excellent. You know, and uh, I saw him at Low Carb Houston. That was like the next week or something, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was just the next week, and I really enjoyed his talk, and his message is so good. And uh, he, he sort of reminded me of that show that we did with Ian Kelly, type 1 diabetic friend of mine. I think it was show 59. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ian was a type 1 diabetic who was used to injecting lots of insulin and covering his food. And although it's totally different from type 2 diabetes, it's almost exactly the opposite in terms of your pancreas. Yeah. It's not an overproduction of insulin, but it's uh, no production of insulin. Yeah. So you do have to have a, a, a constant amount of insulin. Mm-hmm. In your blood, but he he noticed that by cutting out carbohydrates, his blood glucose went from swinging wildly in either direction to just smooth and steady. Right, and uh, that's exactly what we want for everybody, mm. not just type one or type two diabetics. Yeah, good stuff. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So I'm starting to feel a little bit peckish. I, I, it's carnivore, so I'm I'm feeling like a bit a bit meat rending. <laughs> <laughs> Well then, let's get right on to some recipes. <laughs> what you got, Cal? Hey, you got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. You know. Uh, and honestly, um, something came up. This trip came up. I didn't have time to prepare anything. My my car November has been very simple. I'm a simple person. Steak. Yeah. Burgers. <laughs> pork. Bacon chicken i haven't been uh too fancy in the kitchen this week so i'm gonna punt and uh, let you take over and if i get a recipe together before the show comes out i'll upload it and outstanding uh, i'll put it on the on the show in the show notes no worries well my my kind of ember has not been too dissimilar I'm, so what do you got well the, my kind of ember has not been very different it's been fairly simple it's just been meat and uh you know i've but one thing i've found is that when i cook meat in a pan i end up with a lot of fat left over in the pan and uh i don't want to waste that you know yeah. i don't want i don't want to eat lean meat i don't want to go to all the effort of buying <laughs> you know lovely marbled meat just to eat lean meat just to eat mm. the meat after the fat is rented out i want to take advantage of that right so i found a technique that uh I don't know if I've invented it, but it's, I've certainly came up with it on myself. I don't know if anybody else uses this technique. See, this works for you. Let's say you've got a pan and you've just pulled the meat out and you've got all the rendered fat in that pan. Okay. Okay. You've it, The pan's just been on. So you just turn the pan off. Yeah. It's, just, it's still blipping away. The fat is still boiling. Now, what I want you to do is I want to add into that pan so so you have the oil rendered out but you also have on the bottom of the pan you have the fond and that's the the sticky bits on the bottom of the pan that has all of the flavor yeah. so you want to grab both the fond and the oil and you want to turn it into a sauce so here's the trick add some water or some stock you want to add a liquid that is going to Quickly drop the temperature of the oil down from boiling until just warm, warm enough to be able to, you know, warm enough to serve. And so you're going to add some stock. I, I use, I sometimes use stock ice cubes. I, I, when I make a stock, I 
put it in ice cubes into the fridge. Yeah. So I'll drop a couple of ice cubes in there and they'll blip away. They'll they'll make a really loud complaining noise. You want to put the extraction fan on, otherwise you, <laughs> your smoke alarm will have a chat to you. But so right. anyway, what, what you want to do is you, you, you want to use that water to pull the fond off the bottom of the pan. Now, normally you just pour out the oil before you put the water in, before you're trying to deglaze the pan is the technical term. Right. I'm leaving the oil in. Now, here's the problem. You've lowered the temperature. You now have water and you have oil, and they're not going to mix, right? Right. Well, I have a technique. Um, so I add a little bit of – so you could add an emulsificant like uh, lecithin right. or uh, sodium tricitrate. This, we, we use that a lot for cheeses, yep. for example. And what that does is it allows oils and water to become such fine droplets that they will sit in an emulsion. Right. And I have a trick. So I use Philly cheese. Now, <laughs> Philly cheese actually contains sodium tricitrate. You could use Velveeta as well. Really? Yeah. You could use, like, cheese slices. I didn't know that. They all used sodium tricitrate. That was, it was invented specifically for emulsifying cheeses. But I use Philly cheese because it, it turns into liquid really quickly. And, you know, you, and then you just get a whisk in there and you whisk it around. And the Philly cheese, you don't need a lot, like a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon. In a, in, a, in a large pan. And what it does, it, it turns that water, that nasty water and oil mix into almost like a meat mayonnaise. It's delicious. <laughs> you pour that over your meal. That's what I call a special sauce. Yeah. Mm. So that's my recipe. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's awesome. What a great show. Thanks for getting these interviews. Uh, hey, welcome. Yeah, these, these are... Very, very welcome. Uh, Finney was off the charts and Jake Kushner was, what a great message and a great guy. Yeah. I got a couple more from the Gold Coast and then uh, I think I've got a couple more coming from Low Carb Sydney. So uh, there'll be a few more Aussies, I think. And maybe a couple of Kiwis as well. Fantastic. That's a great show. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute, anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at com. We'll post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at 2 Keto Dudes. Make sure to use the hashtag 2 Keto Dudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And you can have a look around the ketogenic forum without needing to create an account by starting with success.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, like t-shirts, coffee mugs, and all that other junk with witty keto sayings on them, <laughs> head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, and I sincerely hope that you do, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. My friend... Keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can. Yeah, keep calm, keto on, Carl, and Keto Fest at least once a year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. KetoFest.com. Go sign up. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Keto Dudes.